We are back with a second exciting panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Dorn. And this month, we are tackling the weird and amazing world of professional wrestling. This panel discussion took place on March 10th at Lion International Studios. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. We went to some interesting places. Not just the toll that the business takes on its many performers and promoters, the messed up and amoral business dealings of Vince McMahon, the politics of it with Hulk Hogan and others, and my favorite Technicolor lunatic, the Ultimate Warrior. There was also a bit of a discussion by Rich Lyons about some of the older history of the Territory Days that I think someone like me who didn't grow up on it really didn't understand the rich history and experience of pro wrestling as a genre. We really look at something that has its origins as a carnival attraction, but managed to make its way to becoming a multi-billion dollar industry that fills stadiums like Madison Square Garden. I think we go to some interesting places and a warning, a couple dark places as well. But you'll come through with it with a better appreciation, as I did, of how diverse of a medium it is. We hope you enjoy the panel. Let's go. Professional wrestling has got to be one of the weirdest fucking things on the planet, and something that I never expected that I would like. It's one part carnival trick, one part boxing, one part soap opera, one part Rocky Horror Picture Show, one part reality TV, and one part stunt show. For years, the performers and promoters protected the biggest secret that they have, that the matches were predetermined in their endings. Because of that, the history of pro wrestling is a mix of lies, half-truths, and secrets. It may be the weirdest billion-dollar industry ever invented, and it's gone from its origins as a carnival scam to dozens of regional promotions all over the East Coast to just being two big promotions in the Americas, WCW and WWF, to now being almost a near monopoly in North America owned by promoter Vince McMahon's WWE with multiple live shows all over the world every week, at least 40 hours of new television program every month, and 12 pay-per-view shows a year. So where the hell did pro wrestling come from? To get to the bottom of this, I have my panel this month, Rich Lyons of Living After Faith Podcast. How are you doing, Rich? I'm awesome. Glad to be here. And my tag team partner for my other comics podcast, Mike and Paul Save the Universe, Paul Rue. How are you doing, Paul? Pretty good, man. It's a little early, but uh, I'm doing quite fine. I'm caffeinated to the eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the Renfield to my Dracula, <laughs> Casey Doran. How are you doing, Casey? I'm great. How are you, Mike? Pro wrestling is this billion-dollar industry that seems to have its origins as a carnival scam. It still uses a lot of the vocabulary of a scam. Fans are called marks. It's called a work for a match. Uh, the word for losing a match is called doing the job. Uh, wrestlers make each other's holds and moves look good and pretend that they're being knocked out. It's called selling. How did we go from the age of carnival sideshows to arenas like Madison Square Garden? This is a ridiculously detailed topic, uh, and there's been a lot of really good research on it. But anyway, the basic thing is wrestling is popular. People love it. And huge, huge crowds would come and see the, the, the big stars uh, of the early days. People like Strangler Lewis and Ed Gotch. And, you know, these guys were just massive, massive superstars of the time. 
the problem was that what they were doing at that stage is what they called shoot fighting, which was your know, real wrestling. They were actually really fighting each other. And back then, you, it was actually quite kind of vicious. Um, there was a guy, George Hackenschmidt, who was quite famous for paying people who would go in and spar with his upcoming opponents and during sparring sessions would inj injure them so that he could get an easy victory. Uh, it, you know, it was a ridiculously, ridiculously competitive thing. But the problem was that this was stupidly popular. The guys involved were stupidly popular and people wanted to see them. Uh, now, if you look at modern day mixed martial arts, guys don't fight more than once every six to eight months. And the reason for that is wear and tear. You get hurt, you get injured, you get broke down. So they kind of went, well, look, how do we let people see these massive superstars week in and week out? And in the end, what they came up with was the idea of just doing it as a show. The matches would be choreographed so that people would not get as injured as they would if it was a real competition and it, it kind of took off from there and in the early days it was ridiculously ridiculously protected you hear stories from the old guys and it was one of those things where you know guys coming up would be taken into a back room at one point and they would they would be smartened up basically the the smartening up process would normally be First of all, here's the deal. It's fake and, and we, we choreograph it and we predetermine matches. Secondly, if you say if you mention this to anybody, we'll break your legs. Um, <laughs> it was kind of you know it's ridiculously, ridiculously uh, secret world. And for years that was the case. The thing is though there's this huge tradition of it. And there's this brotherhood aspect. So even, you know, in the 80s and stuff when it was huge and, you know, Vince was, uh, Vince McMahon was just starting to take off and the whole rock and wrestling thing. People kind of were looking at it and going, this is not legit sport. They still kept that tradition, that which they call kayfabe. It's another carny term. And kayfabe means keeping the secret. Kayfabe actually was uh, kind of a bastardization. Can I say that here? Bastard yeah, go for it. <laughs> kind of a bastardization of... Uh, uh, pig Latin is how they for fake, but someone oh. you can't do fake easily with pig Latin, so right. kayfabe is what it became. That's the really interesting thing with the idea of the predetermined finish, which is that you don't get the same leeway you do with quote unquote real sports. If you were like watching a baseball game and a guy slides into second base and just breaks his femur. Uh, it's over. They're going to cart him off of there. It's it's done. He's out of the game. He's probably out of several games. You're not going to see this guy for a while. He's got to get surgery. In professional wrestling, it's going to go a little bit different because they've got an ending that they wrote, and damn it, they're going to get to that fucking ending. <laughs> and an example of this was uh, the Hell in a Cell match that Foley, Mick Foley, as Mankind had with The Undertaker in the late 90s. We had a situation where The Undertaker went into this match with a broken foot, and he's a character that is not supposed to be able to feel pain. So you have a guy with a broken foot who has to act like he's not injured, and you have Mick Foley who's famous for doing things that are insanely dangerous in a ring. And in this case, the Hell in a Cell match is a cage match where the ring is surrounded by a cage that has a ceiling on it. 
fully wanted to do something different because this this uh, Hell in a Cell match is something that had a reputation for being dangerous and crazy and hyped up. So right into the match, he climbs up to the very top of this thing, and he's standing on the cage. And it's and like 25 feet tall or something, right? It's, it's ridiculously it's high. really, really high. So he's standing up there, and I remember in his, in his autobiography saying something to the degree of, if Undertaker doesn't climb up after here, I'm going to look like shit if I have to climb back down. And uh, thankfully, Undertaker did go up there, and they brawled up there for a little bit. And they had one thing that they had chosen to do, which was that Undertaker was going to throw him off the side of the cage. And he was going to go through one of the announcements tables, the Spanish announce table, which is the famous butt monkey of announcement tables. It gets destroyed at every pay-per-view. And um, he goes through that. He falls 25 feet and crashes through this thing. The crowd goes silent. Um, uh, Jerry Lawler, who's one of the, he's a color commentator at the time, he just screams. He doesn't have commentary other than, ah! And um, at that point, uh, Jim Ross, who is the head commentator, just like, just end the match. It's, it's done. We're done. And at that point, the crowd would have been satisfied with him being carted off in a, in a thing. But they had an ending to get to. So Foley gets back up off of the stretcher. They were they were really ready to take him out of there. But he got up. They're like, okay. He climbs back up there. They fight for a little bit. And this is a thing that wasn't wasn't uh, preordained. They didn't want this to happen. They didn't expect these two guys, who are both very heavy, to be brawling on the cage for this. And as they're walking on it, their feet start breaking through it. It wasn't built to support this kind of weight. Foley breaks the top of the cage, goes through, hits the bottom, and legitimately knocks himself loopy. The rest of the match, he does not remember. He's seen it on tape, but he has no actual memory of it, so he's just kind of going through the motions. At that point, to cover for Foley, because again, they can't stop this thing. (laughs) They have an ending to get to. They have a bunch of roadies and uh, managers and employees of WWF run out there. Undertaker beats him up, but Undertaker first has to jump down from the top of the cage to the floor to go after Foley. And remember, he's got a broken foot and a character that can't feel pain. (laughs) He lands on the foot, hobbles for about half a second, and then I think he whips his hair back the way he always does dramatically because he can't feel pain. And he has to walk around on this broken foot that he's now jumped 10 feet down onto and beat people up long enough for Foley to come to. And when Foley comes to, he ends up doing other crazy things like falling into thumbtacks, getting pile-driven, knocked around. He has no memory of the rest of that. But because, again, this isn't a quote-unquote real sport, and you only get one take, he's got to follow it through to the end. Right, right. Uh, I actually got to see uh, Mick recently. He's doing a a tour around the world. He's doing stand-up comedy. Uh, and I got to is. see him. Yeah, I've got all, you know, it's a lot less wear and tear on the body. He he actually he talked about the fact he's, he's sitting there after he got thrown through the roof of the cage. He's sitting there in the corner and he's kind of up against the turnbuckle and he's got this weird grimace on his face. And Jim Ross's commentary is there. He's going, he's smiling. Mick Foley is smiling. By God, <laughs> what had actually happened was one of his front teeth had been knocked out and had gone through his upper lip. Oh, God. And he could feel the hole there. And he went, I wonder if I can poke my tongue through it. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Because if I do that, that will look really impressive. (laughs) As if falling 20 feet and and giving yourself a massive concussion isn't enough. (laughs) Yeah. 
that's kind of getting to the, I guess you could call the obvious showmanship that goes into this. Not mm. all of it involves having to just break your head and actually having your, your tooth go through your lip into your nostril. No, I mean, if you do it yeah. right, then you don't get injured, right? That's the thing. If yeah. you're skillful, you do not get injured. We look at this from both how uh, fans who, who love this, again, like I said, I never expected to like professional wrestling. I was always on the outside of it until probably about the late 90s. And then you have people who look at it on the outside. So I'm going to go to you first, uh, Rich. How did you get into wrestling, and what do you feel is the appeal? When I got into wrestling, I was just a kid and uh, saw back uh, Mid-South Wrestling, National Wrestling Alliance, uh, back in the territorial days, saw a match where... Uh, Dr. X, a new character they were introducing, of course I didn't know it, kicked Danny Hodge in the head with his loaded boot. And uh, that was time for Danny Hodge to take a vacation, I now know, which was about three weeks. Uh, But at that time, because he was the reigning junior heavyweight champion or some such... uh, Every week they would show clips, you know, a picture of him in the hospital. And, you know, so he was in the hospital for weeks. And that just kind of drew me in how this bad guy could come and with a clearly cheap boot kick this guy in the head who was, you know, a great, nice guy and all of this. (laughs) So as a kid, you know, I was introduced to it. And uh, my parents back then thought, you know, it's kind of we we have to let them know it's fake. So they kind of told us it was fake kind of in the. It's fake, but you can go ahead and like it anyway way. So uh, that was uh, my introduction to it was, you know, the olden days, the territory days. And and I had a kind of a a neat situation in that in Marshall, Texas, which is kind of nowhere in the world, Mm -hmm. uh, we got uh, the Mid-South Wrestling, which was the Cowboy Bill Watts, Grizzly Smith, uh, that whole genre of people were, were actually, we would go to the matches in Shreveport, Louisiana. And, you know, that was driving distance. But we also got television out of Dallas, Fort Worth, and that was the Von Erichs. And uh, there was, so I got to, as a kid, see Fritz Von Erich wrestling as the Germans against, you know, the American tag team champions. And then later he starts his own gig up. So that, that's how I got involved in it and uh, love the old school. I got into it getting invited to a friend's house and they were watching a wrestling pay-per-view. I probably had no interest in seeing it. But I think it was the mix of it being a soap opera, and I immediately saw the the parallels between that and comic books that I read. Mm-hmm. He's on an ongoing serial storytelling with good guys and bad guys, bad guys doing you know terrible things. And the thing that I found really interesting was that I immediately gravitated towards bad guys <laughs> because well, not only were bad guy characters more interesting, but they usually got to do just crazy shit that I, I saw that aside from maybe Ann Coulter, I can't think of an, <laughs> I can't think of anyone whose job it is is to professionally go out there and intentionally get booed. And I, I love the idea of that, that you're a public speaker, your job to get into the suspension of disbelief and hate you to boo you and to sort of enjoy booing you, even though, you know, this person's job is to get booed. So what about you, Paul? How did you find uh, wrestling? They used to play Matt, just single matches on the wide world of sports on Saturdays. And I hated wide world of sports because basically what was the signal that the cartoons were over and that pretty much the rest of the day you just ran around in the backyard. But I must have been running from the backyard to the front yard or something like that. And I stumbled across the Iron Sheik versus Sergeant Slaughter. Wow. Oh, And I just went, holy crap, what is this? <laughs> like, I had no idea. 
I'd seen boxing before because this would have been mid to late 70s. So you had the, the whole Muhammad Ali thing. But I just went, this isn't like anything I'd ever seen before. There is this guy in a in a drill sergeant's hat and fatigues, and he's fighting <laughs> this guy who looks like cartoon genie. And I, I just went, this is the most amazing thing. This is like a comic book come to life. And the thing is, because we only ever saw the matches, like they just sort of go, you know, and now here's some wrestling action live from the United States, and they just show the match. You wouldn't get the preamble. You wouldn't get the promos. So for ages, I thought the Iron Sheik was the good guy. <laughs> <laughs> because Sergeant Slaughter is a bad guy name. That's true. And I just thought the Iron Sheik was so much cooler. And so I went, yeah, he's great. And so, yeah, he was he was my first favorite wrestler because I had no idea he was supposed to be evil. <laughs> Interestingly enough, before he became the wrestling champion, he was actually a bodyguard to the Shah of Iran. Whoa. Mm. So if you notice that the, the look at the time here, he was late 70s, early 80s right. is when he became the WWF champ. The uh, Iran hostage crisis is actually what they used to launch his character. Pro wrestling has always exploited current events as a way to get butts in the seats and to make themselves a bad guy. I mean, Sergeant Slaughter, you mentioned him being the good guy, and he was a good guy for a long time. But during 1991's Iraq War, they had a storyline where he actually became an Iraqi sympathizer. Mm. And of course, Hulk Hogan came out waving the flag and, of course, beat him at WrestleMania 1-2-3 for the championship again. Mm. Yay! That, so technically, he's fighting this microcosm of the Iraq War in the ring. Mm. And and you mentioned um, Fritz von Erich before, fighting as the German. Yep. Coming out of the 1950s up until the, the 70s, there were a lot of German bad guys. They usually come out with the, the Kaiser mm. helmet with the spike on it. <laughs> or nowadays, I, I found it really interesting to, how they try to jump onto current events. There is a Tea Party bad guy oh, in yes. WWE right now. <laughs> Have you guys Coulter, seen him? right? Uh, yeah, Zeb Coulter is uh, um, he's actually Dutch Mantel, and he's managing mm. Jack Swagger, who mm. has been reinvented as this sort of xenophobic bad guy who says America for Americans. Yeah. So yeah. I, I wondered what you guys thought about the idea of wrestling grabbing onto current events and exploiting it. I don't mind it. I, th I think it can be fun and, and, and interesting as, as long as it's kind of broad strokes, but sometimes it does bug me. Vince McMahon is a is a, a knucklehead. He's 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 a bit of a lunatic, and sometimes he will apply some broad strokes where they're really not wanted. I remember one thing that that, that kind of irked me was uh, during Eddie Guerrero's championship. He was up against uh, Bradshaw, John Bradshaw, Layfield, JBL, who was playing this evil Texan. And the the rhetoric during that feud was very fiery. And I think probably in... I mean, that's the thing. Wrestling has never been accused of being especially tasteful. Hmm. But, <laughs> no. You know, sometimes you... You just it just kind of puts a bad a bad taste in your mouth and you're kind of going oh, come on this is this is uh, they took it a bit far I think they they involved his his mother and his kids and you know it was all a bit the thing that I hated the most about it was that he never got his comeback I don't mind if they do stuff like that as long as in the end the good guy goes you know you've insulted my family you've insulted this you've done that you're a bad person and now I'm going to beat you up. <laughs> As long as in the end the good guy beats up the bad guy, but in the end what happened was he he had a match with with Bradshaw. Bradshaw won. He cheated to win, but he still won, and there was no comeback to it. That was just the end of the feud. 
So basically, the the bigot won. Yeah, the bigot won. He won. He won through evil means, but he still won. And in the end, there was no payoff to it. So there's always that sense in wrestling, like what now that this horrible mm. thing happened, and we have to sort of exploit it to move on to the next thing. You know, oh, they got the crowd really angry. What are we going to do now to just drop it? Not only it feels kind of like they're siding with the bad guy in a certain extent. I don't always yeah. want the the good guy to win. But I, I want to get the sense that they're moving towards something and that if somebody does something especially egregious, they're going to pay for it in some way. Paul brings up a good point because uh, back in the territory days, what you really you used your TV show just to fill the place up for your live show. You had a live show every week and actually they would have several live shows like the one I watched primarily was out of uh, Oklahoma City. They would do live show in Oklahoma City. They would do Shreveport on Monday nights. They would do Spring Hill on Tuesday nights. You know, so these guys are actually probably traveling five nights a week in addition to the TV show that they're doing. So, but when they were traveling, uh, what generally happened, the way these feuds would play out is the bad guys would do their horrible thing on TV. That's where <laughs> they would come out with the scissors and cut Ricky Morton's hair while they held down, you know, his partner. And then the, the good guys would get their revenge on the live show. So that's where you would pony up your $12 for the family, you know, because back then, you know, you could go shopping with a dollar and come home with, you know, two loaves of bread and you know a 12 pack of beer and you know now they have better security cameras so you can't do that but <laughs> back in, you know so you know the whole family we'd go to Shreveport and we'd get to see Danny Hodge get to you know really work over Dr. X and the long feuds if the bad guy ever won in the live show you knew it was about to get intense the feud was about to build when the bad guy wanted the live show. It's it's supposed to build towards something. That if somebody does something mm. especially egregious, you just don't drop it there. No. It, it mm. I mean, because you do egregious things, like you said, to put butts in the seats. And if you just drop mm. it and you don't do anything with that other wrestler, he's put in a position where not only does he look bad, but you wasted an opportunity. And mm. what I find kind of funny about wrestling is, you know, this this reaction to the the Jack Swagger feud, the Tea Party thing, the anti-immigration, when having these xenophobic bad guys. One is not I find it interesting is that in this case, the Mexican American is the good guy. Mm. Uh, Alberto Del Rio is the good guy fighting against xenophobic heels, and not only that, the crowd gets it, and the crowd boos these guys. It goes against this stereotype of professional wrestling. Because Casey, you're on the outside of wrestling. Yeah. What does it look like from the outside? I grew up in America, so I grew up watching television, and I knew who Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant were, but without ever actually really having watched watched any of it. I mean, what it, what my impression sort of before prepping for this is that the sense that I got from adolescence, which is that as a form of entertainment, it was kind of silly, it was juvenile, and it was a spectacle, that it was largely something that was from the South, so it kind of had kind of felt like it was the gateway drug to nascar or something you know <laughs> that's a good way to put um, it. I, I didn't i didn't know i really honestly didn't know all that much about it except for the products the celebrities that sort of graduated out of professional wrestling into you know the you rock know. I, I like to call it like mm. it's sort of like the idea of how it's kind of like disney radio where mm. stars come out of this factory there's this factory where they're producing this product and uh, it's for an audience and you they know what they're going to get and every so often there's a Kurt Russell that pops out of it or something or or in this mm. case uh, Jesse Ventura becomes governor or you know The Rock becomes a super you know super popular movie star so and there was there is a stereotype and I 
I'll leave it up to you guys to know if you've heard this, felt this, of that um, uh, the stereotyped audience are people who are emotionally adolescent, who are maybe even, and people who were bigots. Like, there's this idea that all of the sort of the collectively the worst things that you could possibly think about, um, some stereotypically someone from the South, would be identified as what the audience of pro wrestling would be. And that I never met anyone who was anything like that. But there's the uh, the sense that it's sort of like for man chi- man children. Yeah, that's that's the impression that I had of it for a long time too, which is that I didn't expect to like it. And what I find really interesting, and I think may surprise a lot of people because of this Jack Swagger Zeb Coulter Tea Party uh, feud they're doing with Alberto Del Rio, is that not only does the crowd get it, the crowd boos the xenophobes, but yeah. that the that's a much more populist business pro wrestling than I think a lot of people realize because if you're the rich guy in wrestling JBL being a great example Ted DiBiase <laughs> the million dollar man yeah. from, the, from the 80s and 90s you had uh, Vince McMahon himself who became the company's biggest villain for several years mm. and what was the name of the group that he he had of wrestlers that backed the boss they're called the corporation uh, the corporation yeah and uh, the rock the people who would join this group would be said to be, have sold out and that when they joined the corporation, The Rock, whose big moves were the people's elbow, and he was the he had the people's eyebrow, and he was the people's champion. He changed it. Now he had the corporate elbow, and he was the corporate champion, and he was the sellout mm. who the uh, the company would actually interfere in matches and help him win. So that the good guys would, of course, have this disadvantage that the boss didn't like them. Mm. And right. the good guy at the time was Steve Austin. Of course, was this blue collar, angry, crazy redneck guy who would drink beer and beat the shit out of his boss. <laughs> <laughs> which is about as anti-authoritarian as you can sort of get. Because right. It's about as southern redneck as you can get, coming from someone with experience. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I find so interesting about it, is that if there's ever a character in wrestling, this goes against that whole sort of conservative uh, stereotype that exists in it, the rich guy is always the bad guy. And you go all the way back to the territory days with this, where the evil, limo-riding, wealth-flaunting Ric Flair... Oh, yeah. Was the archenemy of the son of a plumber, every man, Dusty Rhodes. Yes. That mm. Dusty Rhodes was a regular guy. He was the he was the guy that represented the audience. Dusty was your favorite wrestler, wasn't he, Rich? I love Dusty. Uh, when he first started, he started in uh, the Mid-South or the uh, National Wrestling Alliance. Uh, he originally was a bad guy that didn't even have a finishing move. His finishing move was the cheat. Any way he could cheat, he would win a match. It was always the cheat. And uh, one of my favorite matches, Dusty, uh, the pre-sell to the match, it was a brass knucks match where they wrapped their hands in tape like boxers do without the gloves. And, you know, you just duke it out. No rules, that kind of thing. And in the pre-sell for it, he comes out with a tomato. And he says, this is your head, Bill Watts. And he bites the tomato and smashes it all over. He just covers himself in tomato goo. So, (laughs) of course, for the match, first thing he does, he pulls out a foreign object, which, you know, you hit somebody with a foreign object, that's where you win. But it's a tomato. (laughs) And he's bashing his opponent with a tomato. (laughs) Wound up losing the match, but it was just, what a creative idea. Bash your opponent with a tomato. The random shit that can happen in wrestling is because, again, this is live. It's all done in one take. It's done in front Mm. of a live audience. And those little moments that can happen on a live microphone are some of my favorite bits. There was a time in WCW. This is one of my favorite wrestling bits of all time because it's such a human moment. Is uh, Booker T and his tag team partner, uh, Stevie Ray, who I don't think they're really brothers, but they're playing brothers on TV. They were a tag team called Harlem Heat. 
and they were cutting a promo on Hulk Hogan. And I, I think <laughs> oh, yes. some of you guys know where this is going. Yes. One of the things of, of cutting a promo well is that you get into it. You got to feel it. You got to feel the emotion that this character's feeling. I'm going to get you, Hulk Hogan. And at this point, in this wonderful moment that can't be scripted, and it goes out on live TV through a live microphone, he's being <laughs> interviewed by Mean Gene Okerlund, and he says, Hulk Hogan, we coming for you, N-word. <laughs> and immediately... <laughs> There's this look on Booker T's face of regret. He t- his hand goes to the side of his face with this, oh, shit, look. <laughs> and he just kind of backs away from the microphone and Stevie Ray steps up. And this is where I knew that Mean Gene Okerlund, this man is a professional. He doesn't even flinch and starts asking Mean Gene a question. And it's those little moments that I just mm. love. And if those things that you, you can't predict and you just have to roll with. Yeah, I think that was maybe the thing that after after going through learning about this that added a little bit more color to it cuz it is juvenile, but I mean it's the it's the kind of juvenile fun of knowing how you want something to go, being able to throw yourself into it and also to throw yourself into these narratives. Like I didn't understand the idea that like worked work shoots, for example. Like the, sh- the shoot is and a promo is like where you talk trash about somebody, right? You take the opportunity to badmouth somebody. Well, working it, I, this, I'm, I'm correct, right? Working it is where you throw in something personal. No, yep. you've got you've actually got it backwards there. Worked is where it's pre-scripted, and a shoot is where you talk real. Oh, oh, oh okay, right. See, and yep. a, a worked shoot is where it's pre-scripted to sound real. Gotcha. Like, for example, say um, somebody was going to cut a, a promo on on Triple H, and and they went, you know what, Paul. You just annoy the crap out of me. And all of a sudden, people go, wait a second, he's used his real name. (laughs) (laughs) What happens is they go, is he really pissed off at him? (laughs) Holy crap, is this really happening? And you've you've got to be really sparing with those. Otherwise, it becomes really obvious that there works. But yeah, that, the the idea that they can do something that's real and fake at the same time. Yeah, that blurring of the li- uh, of the line of mm. something that's spontaneous and something that's scripted to seem spontaneous. So in every instant, you're like, wait a minute, is this real? Is it not real? Is kind of their way of spicing up the open secret. I think that it also is a way of appealing to a multiple level of different fans yeah. you've got your kids yeah. who believe it's all true and you know you address them on one level and then you've got guys like mike who are watching it you know for a whole different reason that your 12 year old guy is and you know and some of the things said on microphone uh, are absolutely it's like some of the uh, animated movies that you see that when you watch it as a kid and then you watch it as an adult you get two totally mm. different views and i think a lot of times some of the things especially cm punk yes uh, yeah, uh, CM Punk actually has become my favorite wrestler. And one of the things I love about him is that not only is he great in the ring, that he gives a great match and tells a great story, but on the microphone, he is famous for throwing little Easter eggs. He does it completely straight. He's, he makes references to things. He doesn't wink at the camera. He just moves past it really quick. And one of my favorite things he did is he was talking to John Cena, who was the, the big champ at the time. And telling him, you know, that he shouldn't get all cocky because, hey, look at the look at the history books. Dig up Gray's Sports Almanac. You'll see right there it says CM Punk 2, John Cena 0. <laughs> and what I love about that is he just made a reference to Back to the Future 2. And the, <laughs> the sports book that uh, Biff and Marty are basically fighting over for the future. And he does it in such a casual way. And that, again, that's the live microphone. 
that you have this moment where he's somebody who knows I've got a live microphone in my hand. I can get away with all sorts of stuff. I may get yelled at it for later, but I just got a crowd reaction. And that's what it really is, is that people say, oh, well, it's fake. Why don't you really care about the belt? And it's like, well, the belt is really like winning an Oscar. It means the company has, they have confidence in you. They're basically saying that we want you to be the face of this company. We trust you. We like you. You're getting a big reaction from the crowd. You're giving us a good product that helps put butts in those seats. And when you see a guy win a belt, it does mean something because of that. So it means something to the guy that holds it. There's a strange meritocracy at play in the way that uh, the wrestlers themselves and their relationship to the business, right? Because uh, the that's the thing that I think find really fascinating about sort of CM Punk's promos is that he'll often make reference to the fact that he shouldn't belong there, right? That he's mm. not the I, yeah. he's not the ideal wrestler for the for what the WWE actually wants. But it's because, and I think this is a point where he it's scripted and he's also telling the truth at the same time. He's there because people like him, and if he can keep people liking what he's doing and what he's saying, that's is the, the the basis of a meritocracy so instead of it being vince mcmahon selects these guys pulls these guys out and makes them the the superstars it's sort of like those who have the talent for it and those who can work for it even if they aren't the hulk hogan prototype of a wrestler can actually be the most popular wrestler for the long time vince was his company was always called the land of giants and it was called the land of giants because Hulk Hogan is six foot six. Andre the Giant is like seven foot three. All of these guys are built like bodybuilders. These guys are huge. And they aren't necessarily the guys who are the fastest in the ring. And that's the other side effect of having the pre-ended finish, which is that there's no reality check for a wrestler in the same way. That Hulk Hogan in his 60s will still wrestle. And you still see him go out there and beating up 20-year-olds. And let's just say if Pete Rose put on a pair of cleats and went out there to play a baseball game, the dude's going to get his ass kicked. He's going to lose badly. It doesn't matter how popular he was back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, The same thing with Hulk Hogan. Yes, you may have been the toughest guy during the Reagan administration, but... If you're somebody that drew money the way he does, it becomes this barrier to new talent coming up. And Hulk Hogan is sort of notorious for this. He's the the worst politician in wrestling. Oh, there's there's a lot of just really horrendous sort of glass ceiling nonsense in wrestling. And it's it's a real shame. Uh, one of the things that has always irked me. And you, you were saying before that, that WWF, WWE was always home to these giants. And the reason for that is that Vince McMahon is a bodybuilder and a, and a fitness enthusiast. And the thing I always got the impression of with Vince McMahon is that he doesn't really like wrestling that much. He does like putting on these shows with these enormous, super healthy guys, uh, you know, with these amazing physiques and these cartoon appearances but he doesn't really like the actual process of wrestling if he could get these guys to just go out stand in the middle of the and and pose for 20 minutes and talk on the microphone he'd do that you know i gotta agree with paul on this and that's one of the differences i see in a negative if i can interrupt here uh, of where Hmm. wrestling was and where it is now it used to be about the matches it really you know and now it seems like uh the match is secondary to the storyline the guy who becomes a champ a lot of times from sort of the 1980s onward usually isn't the best wrestler and that the main event is not the match you want to watch that uh, WrestleMania three 
was all built around Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant. But nobody looks at that like this was this athletic marvel that happened in the ring. Because one, Andre's not going to move very fast. No. Andre's not going to be able to be suplexed. There are certain things that you just don't see happen with a guy that size in the ring. And Hulk Hogan was never, you know, Ricky Steamboat. He was never going to pull that out. What was the great match of WrestleMania three? It wasn't Hogan versus Andre. It was Randy Savage versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Mm. Those guys tore the house down. And those are one of the things that I love in wrestling, which is that the athleticism, which oftentimes gets overshadowed by the big interviews, by the spectacle, by the, by the promos, uh, by the posing. And mm. the thing is, a pose can actually be a move. I mean, that's what uh, the mm. people's elbow is. It's an elbow drop. But it's an elbow drop done with theatrics, done with flair. Mm. Oh, that, that's why Randy Savage, uh, the Macho Man, is my favorite of the w of the classic wwf 80s era because the oh yeah i, I love it it's so good and he can back it up by giving a really good match yeah yeah the um when you were talking about the pose this is one one of the things because you're interacting directly with the audience the pose is important to the interaction there's a, a story I read about a British wrestler, and he, he was writing a column in a British wrestling magazine. And he said, I, I worked once with Jake Roberts. Mm. And I went out there and I went, I said, here's what we're going to do. And, you know, went through the match. And, went, and he said, um, about halfway through the match, he stopped and he looked at me and he said this one move and he pointed it out. And, and he said, uh, do, do you like that move? He said, yeah, I really like it. I, I think it's a good move. The crowd doesn't like it, do, do they? said, no, no, I, I don't usually get a reaction. It's usually just a transition move. So tell you what, do it this time. Now, I'm, I've been Irish whipped into the corner. I'm not coming after you. You can take your time on this. What I want you to do is before you hit that move, I want you to pause for just one second. Just, just breathe in once and let it out and look around the crowd and then hit the move. And he said, okay, because, you know, it's Jake Roberts. What are you going to do? <laughs> and he did. And that one or two seconds made all the difference. Because in that time, the crowd went from, hey, what's he going to do? Oh, he kicked him in the head. To, wait a second, what's he going to do? Oh, my God, is he going to kick him in the head? <laughs> Holy crap, he kicked him. In the, and it, that one second made all the difference from it being this blah move to being really exciting. And that's why the pose is important it's part of the ring psychology that it's not just an athletic competition that if you have an actual boxing match the guys aren't caring what the crowd is doing they could be going to the bathroom i've got to fight this guy but if somebody going to the bathroom in a wrestling match that's a sign of failure that it has a similarity to stand-up comedy in one regard which is that you know immediately how well you're doing you know if the crowd's going crazy or if the crowd's going dead silent i've seen some dead silent matches before uh, one thing that I really love is there's a story that actually, I, Paul, you've got to tell this one, the story about Kurt Angle, who is an Olympic champion, ah. gold medal winner in the Olympics, yeah. and how he learned ring psychology. Yeah, Kurt Angle, good-looking young guy, came from Pittsburgh, competed in the Atlanta Olympic Games, won against the guy from Iran. So the, Ameri- the American guy won against the Middle Eastern guy. Turned out the American guy won with a broken neck. Olympic hero, Olympic champion, won gold for America on American soil. He's pretty much as much a good guy as you're ever going to get. Anyway, he drifted around afterwards, and at one point he got involved in, in professional wrestling and signed up with Vince McMahon. And uh, so he's having a meeting with Vince, and Vince says, you're going to be a bad guy. 
And he goes, what? <laughs> and he says, no, you're going to be a bad guy. And here's how it's going to work. So anyway, what they did is they hooked him up with uh, Christian, who's a, an excellent, excellent wrestler who, who taught him the business. He didn't need to be taught how to wrestle, but he needed to be taught how to pro-wrestle. And uh, they put him out in a match, and Christian said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We are going to stink this place up. (laughs) We are going to wrestle the worst match anybody has ever seen. It's just going to be headlocks and headlocks and rest ups (laughs) and just, here's when you're going to get over as a bad guy, okay? And Kurt went... Okay, sure. And so anyway, they go into this match, and it's just slow. And Kurt's come out to all of this fanfare, because he's the new guy. And they're wrestling, and they're stinking the place up. And the crowd are hating it. <laughs> and the chants start. Boring, boring. <laughs> and everybody is chanting, boring. And finally, Kurt stops, storms over to the side of the ring, grabs the microphone, which he's been told to do, and says, I'm an Olympic gold medalist. <laughs> you do not chant boring at an Olympic gold medal. And the crowd erupted into booze. <laughs> and they hated him. And he went, holy crap, that worked. <laughs> he was just amazing. So little made so big a difference. He's a really great example of something that they inverted a lot in the late 90s through mm. the early 2000s, which is that this is a guy who was born to be Hulk Hogan, but yeah. they decided to do something a little different with him because the audience had changed since the 1980s. They didn't necessarily want the hand-slapping, baby-kissing good guy who mm-hmm. uh, fought the bad guys and told you to take your vitamins anymore. They wanted an idea of a guy who pretended to be that, but it was actually this insecure, angry hypocrite who Mm. wore the red, white, and blue and waved the flag but wanted to tell the entire crowd that he was better than them and that he's going to be their champion whether they like it or not and he's going (laughs) to rub it in their face and they should be so lucky that they get to see him because maybe they can tell their grandchildren someday and it would be the best thing in their whole worthless life. (laughs) The audience changed somewhere in the the late 80s, early 90s. They were kind of tired of Hulk Hogan. And one of the biggest stars that they ever created came out of that and that was The Rock that when he first came to the ring, he was Rocky Mayavia. He was a hand-slapping, baby-kissing good guy. He was everyone supposed to just love this guy. And the crowd wanted him dead. (laughs) I mean, they started chanting, Die, Rocky, die! Die, Rocky, die! (laughs) They just hated him. And his gimmick, when he finally turned bad guy, came out of that organic moment that he could either choose to ignore the fans or they could invert it and turn it into something good, which is that he started coming out there and he started calling himself The Rock, not Rocky Maivia, The Rock. And he started talking in third person and being just an arrogant son of a bitch who would call himself the people's champion, ironically, that I'm going to be your champion. I don't care what you say. And when I do this, move the people's elbow, the theatrics of me pointing at everybody is me rubbing it in your face. And of course, slowly over time, he became popular as sort of the the asshole-ish good guy then. The thing they learned is that you still act as a bad guy. You still act in exactly the same way, but you do it to other bad guys instead. Yeah. Well, it's like Undertaker, the, the McMahon that tried for years to get him actually over as a bad guy, and you just can't do it. The fans just keep making Undertaker a face, even though... There he is uh, trying to be cast as as the bad guy, as the heel. Well, this is one thing that I got to ask you guys, because, uh, of, of course, yeah, like you were saying, guys like Mike are going to watch it for sort of the, the more nuanced play between uh, the, the wrestlers and the suits and whoever else that's there. 
But I mean, doesn't at some point doesn't they're doing the same thing over and over again? You're you effectively you not only know that they that it's a prescripted end, ending, but really over ten years or so, the same story arcs are going to be used and reused out there. And sure, they can do wild and wacky things to try to keep it more exciting. But is there a point where it it gets boring where you're just don't you don't like it anymore that that would be a problem for me i think it can and i think that's the same with movies though too i mean how many times have we seen the same plots in movies over and over again isn't avatar just dune in a lot of ways mm. we see a lot of the, the question is is can you do it in a new way you can do an old thing in a unique uh new way and that's one of the things i loved about cm punk is in a lot of ways he's steve austin again that he's this anti-authoritarian guy standing up to the corporate people Except he does it in a different way. He does it in a much more mouthy, nuanced way, rather than just running down there and beating up the boss and pouring beer all over him. Um, he's a different character. What, more nuanced than that? <laughs> <laughs> That's already Proust. <laughs> yes. And I think that what you do is you just, with a new generation of fans, you find a way to make it relevant to that culture. That he's the anti-authoritarian guy now, but he wasn't the anti-authoritarian guy from the 90s. Just like, what is a good guy now? What was a good guy in the early 80s? But again, look at CM Punk again. You have this guy who's covered in tattoos, who doesn't have a bodybuilder's build. He shouldn't be successful with Vince McMahon, yet he is. That in a lot of ways, he got successful despite himself. They had a bigger hurdle to cross. And that's one of the things that I really find exciting when I watch a punk match, whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, is that I'm actually watching it with suspense, not just because I don't know who the winner's going to be, but because I know as long as they make him the champ or as long as they keep pushing him forward, it means the company believes in him despite their history with people like him. And I'm excited because I'm like, please win please win please win please win because it means they're not shoving him off to the side like with paul mentioned the eddie guerrero thing because eddie spent years getting thrown aside like that uh to, to answer the original question you know you get the same stories over and over to me it comes down to the details to me it's it's the little things that matter one of the the things that gets lost a lot in professional wrestling and this is one of the things that the 90s did, which was not so good for the business, was they had these really big spectacles. They had Steve Austin driving a beer truck down and spraying the boss with beer out of the back of a truck or, or filling his car with cement. <laughs> and you had these really big things and in WCW as well with the, the NWO. There were these big, big revelations and big because they were trying to top each other. One of the things that happens is you hit a, a level of diminishing returns on that, which is what you were talking about. And you sort of go, you know, yeah, it's a big thing again. Oh, uh, you know, okay. Yeah, he's, he's setting fire to his car. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, it gets to the point where, you know, you, if somebody runs somebody over with a car again, you know, it's just, oh, uh, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, but you can get down to the point where suddenly the little things become exciting to you if they're done well. And that's where someone like CM Punk really shines because he's not doing anything really extraordinary. He's just doing his standard heel shtick, but he's doing it really, really well. Also, he's doing it with a lot of sincerity. One of the things that Vince McMahon also did, which kind of busted the industry, was that he admitted that it was fake. Yeah. Because he was under under investigation for steroid abuse and, and all of this sort of thing. And so what happened was he went, okay, how do I get out of this? Okay, steroid abuse isn't a problem because it's not a sport. Hmm. Once he admits that it's not a sport, suddenly all of these sporting bodies have no 
control over him and he's really enjoyed that the fact that there is no oversight body to him because it's not a sport it's not screen actors there's no union there's no you know they're not acting they're not sports people so he came out and went uh, it's you know the problem is that since then because we've they've broken this barrier of kayfabe is people think it doesn't matter anymore the argument i always give to people is You've got to make it look like it's still real. Just because kayfabe isn't there doesn't mean you shouldn't stick to it. It'd be like going to see an action movie and Bruce Willis guns people down. And then halfway through it, the guys are like lying there laughing, uh, even though they're supposed to be dead. It's like, you don't want to see that. You don't want them to break the, the illusion that you're actually watching him murder a bunch of terrorists. The suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be reminded of the fact that he's just pointed a fake gun at a bunch of actors and, and uh, a bunch of squibs have gone off. That's uh, something that I felt, too, about the Hulk Hogan no reality check, that he has so much oh. clout politically behind the yep. scenes that he can go out there as a 50 or 60 year old and beat up people, even clearly knowing his hips aren't where they used to be, his knees aren't where he used to be. His hairline now goes all the way to the back of his head. <laughs> mm. he, and Hulk Hogan never had a full head of hair, as far as I can tell. But... <laughs> There's bald and then there's fucking bald. Um, he's clearly an old man. And when you have an old man beating up a guy who's 30, who I know can do a backflip off of the top turnbuckle and corkscrew it into a splash, and this is a guy who can barely run down to the ring. And I know that later in when he came back to WWE, they wouldn't film Hulk Hogan running to the ring because they knew how bad it looked. <laughs> and then they have to protect him that much. It kills that suspension of disbelief. And Casey and I had a conversation about this. I don't know if you guys uh, had seen this last Rocky movie that nobody saw. I ended up seeing it on DVD, Rocky Balboa. Yeah, I didn't see it. <laughs> see, Rocky Balboa, that is what Hulk Hogan's career should be. If he's going to wrestle at all, and he should save himself up, because clearly his body can't take it the way it used to. But Rocky Balboa, that movie owns the fact that the actor in the lead role, Sylvester Stallone, is 60, and that they want him to fight a 20-year-old. They just own it, and they just go, you are going to get your ass kicked. You don't need to get into this match. You are going to get hurt. This guy will fucking cripple you. Do not do this. Do not do this. You have nothing to prove. Nothing. Just don't do it. You are going to get hurt. And he meets with doctors. They show him all of this. Don't do it. And he goes out there and he loses the match in the movie. Spoilers. But... <laughs> It only lasts as long as he did because early on into the fight, the other boxer breaks one of his hands. So he's handicapped. And the fight is not about Rocky kicking this guy's ass. It's about Rocky getting back up and getting back up. And what Hulk Hogan should do is own the fact that he's old. Make it part of the story. Make himself vulnerable in a way that he never has before. Have that same moment with the doctors where they go, Hulkster, you can't go out there. This guy's going to cripple you. This is not the 1980s anymore. You're not the same guy who fought Andre the Giant. you got to take a moment here. And if he would allow himself to put aside his ego for just a moment, he could have a really compelling story where he can actually be an underdog and actually overcome something. And even if he loses, have that moment where you win the bad guy's respect, which is the other way they like to end these feuds. Mm. But I don't see Hulk Hogan ever doing that. No. The guy's got an ego as big as all outdoors. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that I was thinking about having talked about this is you run that risk of it being, since it's an ego-driven business, where the one who is the most popular is the one who can command the crowd and get him to love him, then you're held hostage to that. And hence, I mean, how many years did Hulk Hogan hold the title? Uh, he held it tw uh, two or three times, but he had held it one time for four years straight. Right, which is kind of was mm. unprecedented at the time, right? That was like, that hadn't happened in a long time. Not mm. for a while. I mean, the, the title reigns used to be a lot longer than they are now. Ric Flair, 
back in those days. Yeah, you would hold the belt yeah. for several years in a row if you were the champ. Um, if you're a bad guy, you'd hold it for much shorter periods of time. But it was pretty rare for Hulk Hogan to lose. He was defending that at WrestleMania after WrestleMania after WrestleMania. It was the mm. same title brain. Where I don't know if that's a sense of the, the crowd not having the attention span that they used to. That we don't trust the crowd to stick with a champ for a year or so. That's why CM Punk going for like 400 days recently as champ is such a rarity that you just don't see that anymore. It's like a Randy Savage title reign where he started as a good guy and ended up as a bad guy. That normally you don't switch until you drop a belt or get a new belt. But they actually had him become a bad guy over the course of having the belt while he was still popular. And it's a hard thing that going from that moment where you've won the crowd over and they love you, how do they make you, how do you make these people hate you now, now that you're super popular? Uh, the Rock did it a couple of years ago where he had just come back from doing a movie. So there's a nostalgia. Holy shit, The Rock is back. Oh my God. <laughs> And it's like, it's super exciting because I haven't seen this guy in a couple of years because he's been off doing movies. But he did the best gimmick that you could do for somebody in that position, which is that he acted like the movie star who was above them now. He came out there, started to cut a promo, and halfway through the promo, he gets a call on his cell phone, and he takes it. <laughs> yep. And he starts talking to his agent, and then if the crowd starts booing, he's like, hey, the rock's on the phone! <laughs> and it was just yeah. a, a wonderful way to do that, how to, how to sort of turn that around. But a lot of times, these guys, they get caught up in their character, and their ego is attached to their win-loss record, like Hulk Hogan. I, I can't imagine anyone who has done more to hurt the business with politics and Hulk Hogan. And the only person I could think of who could be more of a cancer on the industry is Vince McMahon himself. He did good things, but he did bad things. I think the crux of the thing, my problem with, with Vince, is that he doesn't want to be a wrestling promoter. And I used to be on a lot of wrestling forums, and people would always bring this thing up, you know, what, what the hell is wrong with Vince? And it eventually became Paul Roo 316, which is Vince McMahon's problem is that he promotes wrestling like an entertainment mogul, and he runs his wrestling company like a carny. Hmm. He gets caught up in these petty, vindictive feuds, which is pure carny. Somebody, you know, embarrasses him or somebody says something about him, you know, and he, he will get on television and dress somebody up as that person and have Kane or somebody beat them up. And it's this kind of petty, vindictive thing, which is just pure carny mentality and he'll sometimes do it to his own employees too and oh, sometimes yeah. like jim ross who was mentioned before who's the best wrestling announcer of all time as far as i'm concerned that hmm. jim ross sells his product more than any of the wrestlers do that he will <laughs> send you into a match honestly thinking that this is a life or death situation that one of these people are going to die right in front of you and that oh my yep. god he's hurt somebody stop this he's kind of like the stand-in for the audience He's there oh. to tell the audience the story of what's going on right now, and he is so goddamn good at it. Yep. And Vince McMahon will treat him like shit when he should be the highest paid guy in the company. Um, he has and there's a, a reason for that. The reason for that is that Jim Ross is fat. Huh. Vince hates fat people. Vince thinks that anybody who's fat, that is evidence of a lack of self-discipline and self-control. Vince McMahon is a workaholic who is extremely self-disciplined. So he looks at Vince, uh, at Jim Ross, and he sees a fat guy who repulses him, and he feels a need to belittle him and humiliate him on a regular basis. The WWE, a couple of years ago, started this Be A Star campaign. 
And it was the idea of an anti-bullying campaign where they send a wrestler out to like a high school or junior high and say being a bully is bad. Yet Vince, and this is actually CM Punk brought this up during his work shoot where essentially went on TV and aired all of his actual grievances out in character. And one of them, the thing before they cut his microphone off, which was staged, but I have to believe the place where they did cut it off was, okay, that's far enough, (laughs) was he was starting, you know, this whole be a star campaign. And then later during a live microphone, he did eventually say it. He says, for all this talk, you are the biggest goddamn bully I have ever met in my entire life. That, that Vince is a bully. He is somebody who will take somebody who's a big star who comes into his company from another company and break them down and say, no, I own you. He will break them down completely and he will potentially lose money with that person yep. simply to prove a point to them. And oftentimes he is his worst enemy. Good, which again is that carny mentality. Basically, if you get a big star, then obviously you want to make money out of them. But it's far more important to him that people know their role and pay their dues and, you know, all that sort of, you know, carny nonsense than it is for him to make money. And, and the WWE is a publicly traded company. Hmm. So, you know, he's making money for his shareholders, but sometimes he'd much rather air his personal grievances. And to do it with people's careers, too. And that's oh. that's the part that, that has always really bugged me with Vince McMahon, is that I'll give him some credit, is that when on-screen oh, yeah. humiliation happens, Vince will subject himself to it, too, to be fair oh. to the guy. But he'll also do storylines called, like, the Vince McMahon Kiss My Ass Club, where yep. people have to literally come out and kiss his ass or be fired on air, you know, stage fired, but... But he'll allow himself to get the shit kicked out of him by um, Steve Austin or get his head shaved or drowned in beer or thrown around. I'll give him credit for that. But the weird thing is that Vince seems to think that if he lets it happen to himself, that it gives him a free ride to do it to anybody else. And it's not always fair, especially when you go after somebody like Jim Ross, who Mm. has probably done more for his company than any one person, probably more than Hulk Hogan. Probably more than Steve Austin, because he helped make Hulk Hogan and Steve Austin. The thing you don't see during live shows, and I've gone to a number of live uh, WWE events. I've gone to like an episode of SmackDown being taped, and I went to WrestleMania 19. The thing they don't show on TV is that the announcers have entrances too. Jim Ross has his own theme song, and he walks out to, and holy shit, does that dude get applause. Yeah, he does. That's something that Vince needs to pay attention to, because not only does the crowd love Jim Ross, they respect and they believe in Jim Ross, because that's something you can't buy. No matter how much promos and and storylines you throw at somebody, he gives it a legitimacy that despite the carny selling, that you can't buy. And you can't, because I've seen bad announcers before, and they've had bad announcers during the times that they fired Jim Ross. And they always ask for Jim Ross back. And it just blows my mind. The the benefit of someone like Jim Ross over uh, a Tony Schiavone, for example, who is just awful, is uh, that Jim Ross always makes you think that whatever's going on is important. And he always tries to find something interesting about what is happening. You know, if somebody does a particular move, he'll go, oh, that's shades of this particular wrestler or that that was invented by this guy or these guys have fought before on opposite sides or whatever. You know, you're sort of going, okay, so there's history here and this is important and this is interesting. Um, And he he does it for everybody because every match that comes on, he commentates. I'm really interested in this idea here because you're sort of talking about Jim Ross as the keeper of the history that happens. Tell me a little bit about um, uh, and the process of taking all of the littler leagues, all the clubs, and then consolidating them eventually. What would we 
become WWE. What I know that there was feuds feuds between companies, but how did that work out? I mean, how's that shake down? Well, I I think it it started out where we had these territories. You had a company that would take up this part of Texas or that part of Florida. And what happened is that the branch that came out of New York, which was Vince McMahon Seniors, the WWWF, which became eventually the WWF, and then after a lawsuit, the WWE, is that Vince McMahon Jr. came to the conclusion that I don't want to be just regional. I want to be a media mogul. And like Paul says, I've always gotten the impression that Vince McMahon doesn't like wrestling. And I think a lot of his personal beefs, and he played these out on air a lot, with Ted Turner, who owned WCW, went further than just a competition between two wrestling companies. I think he was angry at Ted Turner because he was jealous. And I think he was jealous because Ted Turner not only owned a wrestling company, he did movies, he did TV networks, he did sports, he did all these things. And I think Vince wanted that. Vince Mm. wanted a different company than the one he had, but he never got the chance to move. And he has tried to branch out from it. He has had the chance. He has had the chance several times. Yeah, the XFL. Remember he did his own football league? Lasted a year. World Bodybuilding League. Yeah, that one was a huge flop. Well, he's done movies, too. You mentioned being a movie mogul. WWE does movies. Some of John Cena's movies are absolutely the worst crap you will ever see. Yeah, they're like the action movie equivalent of like the sci-fi originals. Well, you say that, but uh, this is something, because I've noticed this on two trailers that have played over the past couple of months. One for, what is it, Dead Man Down, which is by the director who did the original Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and then another one with a Holly Berry called The Call, which is not a movie with like bruisers or other people in it like an action movie would be. And those are both uh, produced by WWE Studios. So they're definitely moving into doing like s- serious movies, not direct-to-video releases. And things that aren't necessarily starring wrestlers. Exactly. I always get the sense that he was angry at Ted Turner because he wanted that. He wanted mm. not just to own a, a wrestling company as a side gig the way that Ted did, but he wanted an entire media empire. And he's always failed whenever he's tried to expand beyond the world of wrestling. Mm. That's the question about Vince's monopoly is that the last big competitor, which is WCW, which came out of the Southern Territories, consolidated itself into a big national company. They really had that 1990s back and forth because, like you said, they were trying to top each other. They were fighting in the ratings. And there was that two-year period where WCW was actually kicking Vince's ass. And after that, it was just a long, slow decline. And like, and it was just so badly run that it just really just petered out to the point they were so desperate to get attention that David Arquette was WCW champion at one point. <laughs> what? Yeah. The, the guy yeah. from Scream 2. <laughs> they made him the champion as a, as a media tie-in to a movie that they were doing, a, starring a bunch of WCW wrestlers called Ready to Rumble, that he starred in that movie. And they said, oh, this would be great. This will get so much attention. But it hurts the credibility of the belt because it really points to the fact that this is fake. And like you said, we need that suspension of disbelief. But to to answer your initial question with the territories and vents, the simple answer is money. Hmm. How did it go from being territories all over the country, small territories all over the country, to being WWF? Money. Vince inherited a lot of money from his dad, and what he would do is he would go into the territories, and he would find the biggest stars from those territories, and he would offer them lots and lots of money. Right, right. Poaching, I guess, right, is what it's called. Yeah, he, he would basically go in and poach their talent. And it got to the point where you were afraid to build somebody up as a big star because Vince would show up with his checkbook and they'd be off to New York. Hmm. And yeah, it just got to the point where the, the, the other guys just couldn't compete and he got the television and there was one 
case was the biggest television pay-per-view of of the year for another company. I think this was the NWA. Which oh, Starcade. Starcade. And he basically said to, to the, the cable provider, if you want WrestleMania, you have to take, and it was Survivor Series or SummerSlam or something, and it was on the same night as Starcade. Hmm, wow. So, yeah, basically he just undercut people viciously because he had the money to do so. It's kind of reminded me a little bit of the, the 90s where there was a real battle between Jay Leno and David Letterman on late night television where they said, if you do an interview with David Letterman, we're not going to let you on Jay Leno. If you do any other show other than Jay Leno, you're not appearing on us. If you appear on Chevy Chase's show, we're not taking you on. If you appear on Arsenio Hall, you're not appearing on our show. And of course, uh, people are going to want to appear on the biggest show possible. They want that money. They want to promote their movie. So it, like with Vince, it just kills smaller people. It kills people doing different things. Right, right. I would be lax if I didn't talk about this because this is one of my favorite ironically favorite things in professional wrestling which is of course the ultimate warrior oh yes <laughs> the the ultimate warrior probably needs a little bit of an introduction if you're a fan of wrestling i don't need to say anything other than those two words ultimate warrior but if you don't know this is a guy who had originally been a tag team partner to sting back in the 80s and exploded in wwf this is a man who has this hulking bodybuilder guy with frosted farrah fawcett hair and skin like a laminated hot dog <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a guy who looked like the 80s just vomited all over him with just fluorescent colors, streamers, face paint. He looked like the leader of that gang in the Road Warrior crossed with a trapper keeper. <laughs> and he was a goddamn lunatic. He would give the most wonderfully nonsensical promos. I mean, there's nonsensical promos. I love Macho Man Randy Savage. And he gave most of his great promos while he was high on cocaine. <laughs> but they would still be coherent there'd still be a message in there. And he was like, ooh, yeah, Mean Gene, I've been to the danger zone. It was at <laughs> west of the Rocky Mountains, north of Mars, and south of hell. And he'd just go off on that stuff. But that stuff is fucking Proust compared to the stuff that the, the <laughs> Ultimate Warrior would say. The Ultimate Warrior sounded like a mix between Deepak Chopra and a Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> it would be this growling incoherent babbling about doing battle and drawing powers from the gods and he'd say things like when the bones of the elephant point north and the stars of the orion belt are in alignment the bell will toll for the hulk hogan oh. it was nonsense it was glorious nonsense. He would just go off like that. He had all of Hulk Hogan's just Machiavellian tactics to try to grab the spotlight for himself, but he didn't have the political skill. And he was a character you couldn't really write anything for because he would just run around like a crazy lunatic and shake the ropes. And he was awful in the ring. And I mean, awful to the mm. point that Hulk Hogan had to carry him in the ring. Wow. <laughs> he was he terrible. <laughs> Not only that, he would write these long essays that just read like Vogon poetry. <laughs> it was like if a Klingon wrote the sort of poetry the little 13-year-old girl writes in her notebook. Well, there's, there's only really one word you need to describe the ultimate warrior. You know what it is, right, Mike? Distrucity. Distrucity. <laughs> Somebody once said of the ultimate warrior that he was so batshit that he had to invent his own words to capture how truly crazy he was. <laughs> and I think it's like the distrucity is that you find this like middle ground between destruction and your own destiny. <laughs> and he had the word like yeah. folk, that it's like focus, but you take us out of it because you got to focus just on yourself. It's me. Take the us out of focus. <laughs> folk. You got to folk. <laughs> 
And he wrote a comic book that if you were to Google it, please do, the Ultimate uh-huh. Warrior comic, especially the Christmas special. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> because there is... It's really just a group of pinups in his comic book. It will scar you for life. You can't unsee it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is Freudian look into the Ultimate Warrior's brain that... How would you describe it, Paul? Uh, God. <laughs> Damn it. Um, you got some, like, 15-year-old metalhead who was had, like, smoked himself insane and listened to nothing but slayer for 10 years <laughs> if, if you if you got this weird peyote crazed 15 year old metalhead and said you know, tell us tell us the story of rudolph the red-nosed reindeer you'd probably get something like the the warriors christmas special <laughs> i think you'd get something quite like <laughs> it's it's quite like warriors book yeah well, that's a question I got to ask. Any self awareness on the part of the promoters that are doing this, where some sometimes they really are asking their the the wrestlers to go out and humiliate themselves. And yeah, you know, like you said, sometimes Vince McMahon himself will allow himself to be humiliated, or John Laurinaitis will will be on there and allow himself to be humiliated for the crowd, essentially. But like, there seems to be a point where some of it could be exploitation. I mean, don't you think that maybe at, at a certain point with Ultimate Warrior, they might have just been exploiting someone who was just mentally not competent like he just wasn't there that's you know (laughs) (laughs) that the idea has crossed my mind before if you know at what point is is it beyond the the where do you cross the line because clearly ultimate warrior even you see him today he isn't mm. right i mean <laughs> and he's, a, he's a motivational speaker now <laughs> but there's no question he's not right no I mean, there's no question and uh yeah they totally rode that bandwagon but i mean who better to play the crazy than and, and boy that's just so stereotypical it makes me sound so regressive but <laughs> who better to play uh, that character than than someone who doesn't really have to play right (laughs) (laughs) and on the other hand the warrior he exploited the company as well i mean he knew how important he was he knew how popular he was so he screwed them for everything they were worth it's time for our segment we call high point low point where we look at what is the best part of professional wrestling where is it at its apex and also, where is its low point? So I'm going to start with you, Rich. Where is professional wrestling at its best? My high point for professional wrestling, this goes back 30-plus years, Marshall, Texas, the National Guard Armory. It's a tag team match. And and this is kind of a microcosm thing. You've got Danny Hodge, who is the ultimate good guy. He is teamed with, at that time, good guy Skandar Akbar. And they are taking on, uh believe it's Dick Murdoch and Killer Carl Cox. And these two guys... I, I love the tag teams that was uh, i still love tag teams you can get so much drama and so much stuff in a tag team match it's just fun but you've got these you know ultimate good guys and you've got these other two guys who uh, satan is a good guy compared to them i mean they are the evilest of evil their move is the brain buster that can leave you with permanent brain damage and (laughs) you know they're just horrible people and you've got these two great icons of goodness in the american way even the one guy skandar akbar that's before people of Middle Eastern descent were really evil. They were just kind of evil then. So, you know, so here you've got this great match between these guys. And sitting ringside, this is a live show. It's I'm 
few rows back, but front row of ringside, there's this little man who's probably 80, 85 years old, has a cane. And at some point during the match, uh, Dick Murdoch gets thrown out of the ring and lands right at this guy's feet. And the old guy just panicked, and he raises up his cane, and Dick Murdoch looks at him like, no! <laughs> and he hits him with his cane. And Murdoch takes the fall, just falls out. He is dead in the water. And, and this little old man has defeated Dick Murdoch. He was, and, and years later, the funny thing, years later, when I was working at the News Messenger in Marshall, the sports writer writes a column, and I find out that was his grandfather. Whoa. Oh. And I was actually at this event years later. I mean, I mean, this is probably 15, 20 years later that I meet this guy. And here you've got, and, and the way he described it was it was like granddad it, it was like he had completed his bucket list. He had beaten Dick Murdoch. He could go on to heaven in peace because he had, you know, to me, that is the pinnacle of what wrestling could be. Uh, the little old guy, I mean, when he hit him with that cane, it meant nothing. And it could have died right there, you know. Today, I don't know what. They'd probably haul him off and arrest him for assault. But when he hit Dick Murdoch with that cane, he just felt like he had been hit by a t- two by four i mean just <laughs> laid him down and and to me that was what it was all about they made that guy's probably his life on that night and it, and it was an awesome trip for everybody there because uh, you're in the thing kayfabe and all that aside the old man just kicked dick murdoch's ass hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was my best the best wrestlers will know to pull those sorts of moments in like getting them involved in just that little moment where somebody makes somebody's complete day and sometimes makes her great television because i can guarantee you when that old man hit the guy with a cane went ape shit oh yes so paul high point high point for me this is uh i can't top that that's just too amazing <laughs> but uh i've got to say for me I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wrestling fan for decades but i i confess i haven't watched televised wrestling in a long time it just got to the point where there was no wrestling Right. It was there was there's no wrestling on the show, and um, I I I like wrestling. I like the art of wrestling. I like the the interplay, but the the guys in the ring and the interplay with the crowd and the way the matches are set up. I love watching it. The thing I like is when it can overcome the smart part. There's there's two terms. A mark. The mark is the person who believes that it's all true or suspends their belief to the point where they might as well. And a smart is a person who is aware of what's going on, knows that it's fake. And I really like when it cuts that smart part. I I just mark out. (laughs) And I just go, look, I I don't care. So basically, as I say, I haven't watched television or wrestling for some time. So I'm going to cheat and give you two examples. And one of them is pure Mark, and one of them is is as a smart wrestler. A couple of years ago, I was watching a live show uh, where... One of my favorite local wrestlers, a guy called Mason Childs, was retiring. And the opening match of this was a, an over-the-top rope rumble. And a bunch of my very favorite local Australian wrestlers, including a, a guy called Mark Davis, who is just an absolute genius in ring. He's just good at everything. He does everything perfectly. And he was wrestling up a storm. And there is a guy in the ring called Steve Moore. And Steve Moore is a slimy sack of crap. He's just, I love to hate him. And it's just, it's irrational. And Mark Davis threw Steve Moore out of the ring. And I went, hey, Mark Davis won. Awesome. And the ref didn't see it. 
and Steve Moore got back in and threw him out over the top rope. <laughs> and I stood up and I looked and I pointed straight at him. And it was quite quiet. It was just a, quite a, a quiet moment. And I just screamed as loud as I could, you low dog, Steve Moore! <laughs> and he looked right at me. And he had a look of fear on his face like I was going to go in. And I, I just went, no, that's... I had, I just completely forgot where I was, what I was doing. All that I know was that I hated him <laughs> with every fiber of my being. And I loved that. When anything can do that to me, when a comic book, when a movie can just make me just forget everything and react in that pure sort of visceral way. I, I love that. I love that right to the bottom of my heart. On the smart front, this was a few years ago now. One of the local promotions got uh, American indie wrestler called Chris Hero, who's currently in development with WWE, is a guy called Cassius Ono. But they got Chris Hero out, and he wrestled what is the finest match I have ever seen with a Japanese masked guy called Shadow Phoenix. And these guys exchanged holes, they, they flew, they brawled, they put each other in submission holes and reversed and it was just the pure expression of wrestling as an art form uh it, i know how wanky that sounds but it was really true and i just i was just watching it and, and i was just totally enraptured by watching these two guys just working so magnificently it was a long match and at the end of the match there was this period of, of celebration and Chris Hero got up and he went, you know, it was an honor to wrestle this guy. And he's been wrestling in Australia. He was a Japanese guy. He, he spoke a little bit of English, but not a lot. And because Hero had been in Japan, he knew he could speak Japanese. So the guy could actually work to his fullest with him because they could, you know, communicate properly. And at the end of the match, he said, I only met this guy this afternoon and we wrestled this match for you. And it was an absolute honor. And it was only 10 minutes before we got into the ring that we realized that at one point, because I had studied in Mexico, Shadow Phoenix has studied in Mexico, that at one point we had had the same teacher. And I can't, I can't remember the name of the guy off the top of my head, but it was just this, this wonderful, I really had that feeling of the, the brotherhood, of the, the camaraderie. And it was probably the best light I've ever seen wrestling in was the fact that there were two guys who were from completely different countries, from completely different worlds, who had got together and performed this beautiful feat of showmanship and skill and athleticism for us. And there were maybe 100 people in the room, maybe if that. And it was just this wonderful thing that I was so privileged to be there for. And I think that that's probably the finest moment I've had in, in wrestling. For me, it's losing yourself in something that you know in your brain is not real, that you know that I'm reading a book and I know none of these people are real. I know that none of their problems are real and none of the things that they care about are real, but I forget about it. I, I can mm. let it go for just a little bit. Like you said, that suspension of disbelief breaks in and you see just how amazing in the ring two people can work together that the beauty of it is that yes because the big spots that happen during the match the finish and maybe a couple things during the middle are thought out in advance but you realize that these guys are really communicating in the ring often non-verbally 
Now you reverse. Now you do this. And when two guys are doing things that you have no idea how they could have not pre-planned this. And for me, that was probably a match at a past pay-per-view between Kurt Angle and who had been my favorite pro wrestler of all time, Chris Benoit. These two guys in the ring were fucking incredible. They would hold into reversal and, and they would do things that... I would just, jaw would just drop. It would hit the floor, like, not just because it was dangerous off the top rope, but the athleticism, the agility, the shows of strength, the reversals, the creative ways they would come up with reversing each other's holds into different holds, and they would always do it in a different way. Chris Benoit, the thing that I really loved about him as a wrestler is that he wasn't a great talker. The guy couldn't give cut a promo like mm-hmm. The Rock, but it was okay because when he went into the ring, that's when he shone. Mm-hmm. He would make people look like a million bucks. He mm-hmm. could take a wrestler who wasn't really well known for doing much more than punching and kicking, and by the time he was done feuding with them, they would use three or four new moves that were not part of the repertoire before because they would have this sudden sense of, holy shit, this guy can go, and they would get ambitious. He would make the people he wrestled better. Mm-hmm. He would do things in the ring that you could show to a non-fan. And that's one of the things I like about any hobby, with comic books, with movies, with anything. Can I show this, even though it's got this reputation for being a nerd thing or a hillbilly thing or whatever, If can I show this to a non-fan and they could get it? And Chris Bezois was one of those guys that he could make people get why I love this. Mm. And I think that's my favorite part of pro wrestling. Casey, you're coming at this from the outside. You're not a fan. You've had a chance to look at at pro wrestling now. And I probably wouldn't go and shell out 15 bucks for a pay-per-view event for WWE. I probably wouldn't. My high point is Mike Hagar, (laughs) 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 which for some of you who may not know, he's he's a fictional video game pro wrestler who gets elected mayor of Metro City and has to take out the trash, essentially, when his daughter gets kidnapped. But, I mean, that's what's fun about it, right? Is that it's a silly character and that he's a huge, strong man, and all he's doing is he's mm. beating up the guys you know who deserve to be beat, beat up, and he's a legend for it. And yep. did that that video game come out before Jesse Ventura was elected governor? 1990? That was oh, before yeah. then. Yeah. Yep. So... That's what I kind of love about it is not only is he a pro wrestler that goes out and fights armies of of henchmen and goons to save his daughter, but that he's suplexing them and using wrestling moves. Yes, yes he's doing the, in the game. He's doing the flying the flying pile driver, right? Super pile driver. <laughs> that's yeah, I, that's I love the idea that somebody would use that in a real fight. Yeah. <laughs> so, low point. We're going to look at where is pro wrestling at its worst, Rich? At its worst, and again, I go to a live uh, event. Junkyard Dog was involved. He was one of the good guys, one of the bad guys. There was a woman involved who was one of the uh, uh, managers or, you know, sometimes the woman just is part of the show with with the good guys. (laughs) And during the match, one of the bad guys slapped the woman. And I heard a kid, probably 12 years old, 14 years old, uh, sitting near where I was, scream and you realized at that moment that that was not the first time that kid had seen a woman hit by a man oh wow and Mm -hmm. i think that a lot of the later i've seen triple h uh do the the uh the pedigree pedigree couldn't think of it do the pedigree on his wife uh vince mcmahon's daughter i don't know if that's storyline wife or if they were actually married probably not they are actually married oh they actually are okay well, you know, but, I mean, you've seen those things. And I think when when wrestling crosses in to try to make domestic violence look good, 
Uh, mm. You've crossed the line. You've jumped the shark. That at that point, uh, to me, uh, I didn't. Uh, that it was decades that I didn't go to a match after that because wow. I just couldn't go domestic violence. I mean, uh, no longer suspending belief. Nothing that crossed the line for me. Hmm. Yeah, I've noticed that wrestling at its worst also has a lot of slut shaming that kind of comes into it yeah. at the same time. That you get uh, people like Stephanie McMahon, who is Vince's daughter, coming out of character, and the crowd will chant slut at her. And the good guys sort of encourage that to yell that at her. And that's always something that made me really uncomfortable because it's you, you want to have a, a type of entertainment that anybody can enjoy. And this is a problem that I know that Paul and I talked about, about comic books, which is that you get so caught up in projecting this to a specific hardcore audience or what you believe is that audience. And you forget that there are other people in there that could be put off by that, that want to like this product. Yeah. But they see Triple H basically beat up his wife, and we're supposed to cheer him on in that moment. Right. Mm. Or other bullying moments. There's a character called Eugene. Yeah. Eugene is... Mm. You that, that was clo- uh, Go ahead with that. That was going to be my second worst. Go ahead. Yeah, Eugene was a character that they created who was a retarded wrestler. He was like mm. basically a wrestler with uh, Down syndrome or whatever. Wow. Played by somebody who didn't have Down syndrome. Right. It would have been one thing if he really did and he was a good wrestler and they didn't exploit it. But they basically had it where his his logo would look like it was written in crayon with like a letter backwards. And he Ah. would be like, I'm a wrestling fan! Bad on WWE in the first place for having a wrestler like that to exploit that in the first place. Right. They should have never done that character. And you're just like, if I was watching this with a non-fan for the first time, I'd have no argument to defend it. Hmm. Yeah. So, Paul, what's the low point? For me, the, the the thing that I hate most is hearing the horror stories about people. The most obvious one, of course, is, is Chris Benoit, who was the best technical wrestler in the world, who murdered his family and... Whoa. Uh, and took his own life. He, he yeah, committed suicide. And afterwards, they did a, a scan on his brain, and he was... I think he was in his early 40s, maybe his late 30s. Uh, He had the brain of an 80-year-old Alzheimer's patient. Whoa. Uh, And that was from repeated shots to the head and and blows to the head and working injured. And and, and you hear about about that. That, That's obviously the worst. But uh, Jake the Snake Roberts was a guy I I loved as a kid. Uh, I was terrified of him as, as a bad guy, and I loved him as a good guy. Uh, and he's he's a, a, a wreck of a man. He's he was addicted to crack and uh, having horrendous amounts of health problems. And uh, he's actually he's actually doing really well for himself at the moment. There's another a wrestler, a guy called uh, Diamond Dallas Page, who does a program involving yoga and 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 diet and and stuff like this. And he's working with with Jake Roberts at the moment, and they're trying to to get him. Um, back in order and uh, doing a really, really good job. And it's been wonderful to see, but there are so many situations of people whose lives they've come out at the end of wrestling ruined and broken. Well, like the Von Erichs damaged. Yeah. The Von Erich family is, is a, is a absolute tragedy. I remember that they did a, um, a DVD release honoring Kurt Hennig, Mr. Perfect, who was a fantastic wrestler uh, and a second generation wrestler. His dad was Larry, the ax Hennig. And they interview Larry on the on the video on the DVD, and his dad does a bit of, and Kurt's not there because he took too many drugs and it worked on his heart, and he 
died of a heart attack. There's a um, an interview with Bret Hart where he, he sits there and he goes, I had this photo of me and all my friends and we used to sit there and we used to look at the photo and it was us standing around a barbecue and go, you know what, when we retire and get out of this business, this will be us. We'll just be sitting around a barbecue and shooting the shit about old days. And you look at it and there's Dynamite Kid, who's a wreck. I, I don't even know if he's still alive. Davey Boy Smith, who's dead. Brian Pillman, who's dead. And Owen Part, who is dead. And, you know, it takes such a toll. And Roddy Piper wrote a, a biography. And in that book, he talks about a thing called the sickness. And one of the things with wrestlers is that they, they tend to be damaged people to start with. And they get into this business. And the business is a hard business. And it's a rough business. And it's a strong business. And you work injured. And it's very competitive. Because if you don't work, you know, if you, if you get injured and you take time off, then you lose your spot. And somebody else gets your spot while you're recovering. So what you do is you take painkillers so you can keep working or you keep working even though you're injured. And for a while there, there was this whole idea of, you know, hardcore and people doing really dumb things and getting hit in the head with tables and ladders and smashing their heads in and bleeding all over the place. And, and that takes a toll. And if you're, if you're starting out already kind of with this, this damage, and you get into it, and the, the business kind of feeds that sickness, then, you know, it can have tragic consequences and has for, for so many people. And that, more than anything else, is my low point. Because in order to enjoy the product, you have to kind of push that out of your head. Because otherwise, you're sitting there and you're, you're thinking, where are these guys going to end up? Wow. Paul actually touched on my low point. Yeah. And it's the fact that you kind of... That I mentioned Chris Benoit was my favorite wrestler of all time. Um, he did, of course, murder his family and commit suicide. And because of that, I didn't watch wrestling on television for like five years. It wasn't until sort of the rise of CM Punk and that video becoming viral that I started kind of watching it in a peripheral way again. But for the longest time, it was this guy who, by all accounts, was this nice family man. And the shots that he took in the ring, the shots that I enjoyed him taking in the ring and the concussions that he got and him working hurt and the way that this business doesn't give people time off, because unlike the wild world of sports where you have baseball and football and basketball, you don't get an off season. You don't get a time to heal. You keep going or somebody else is going to be in your spot. Then you have to work that much harder when you come back. And unless you're Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin, you can't, your career just can't afford that kind of break. And I, there's a part of me that after Chris Benoit, I wonder who's the next Chris Benoit? Who is it that I enjoy watching, seeing, get beaten up, knowing that each one of those shots is possibly contributing to a future tragedy, not just to their life and their drug problems. Like Jake the Snake tried to fix his pain problem with drugs and alcohol, and I just can't completely push, push that away when I watch the show. And it's hard because it, it just says that something fundamentally has to change with wrestling to fix that problem, and maybe it means they have to have an off-season. Maybe it means they need to be unionized the way that Jesse Ventura says. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how to fix it. And as long as it's owned by one man, Vince McMahon, the wrestlers don't even have the ability to threaten to jump to another company now because there's Vince money and there's everybody else. It's like if Warner Brothers was the only big movie company and the biggest one after that was like Lionsgate. Right. 
That's what they're working with. And or trauma. Or trauma. <laughs> yeah. That that's your best bet is that either you're working in direct to video or you're working for Vince. And he owns your character, he owns your schedule, and he will bully you into working hurt. And I've heard this story over and over and over and over again of guys' lives that are just left in utter fucking ruins. Hmm. So, on that happy note, Casey, <laughs> uh, what's your low point? Uh, I can't, uh, it's hard to follow that. It really is hard to yeah. follow that. That's pretty heavy. And from the little that I've known about the, watching uh, Vince McMahon's promo about his announcing of what, what is now known as the Attitude Era is actually one of the strangest, most surreal. And also, when you really put your brain on what he's, what he's actually doing to everyone who has to work in this medium afterwards is horrible it basically makes it that much harder to play using the uh the 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 disbelief and it and it essentially erases the uh the magic of the whole uh profession that that's been for i don't know what a hundred years hence it it completely erased the magic of the entire thing you're you're talking about the promo where he admitted that it wasn't real correct correct where he said that it was part soap opera and part you know uh Days of our lives. Yes, exactly. Mm. Uh, And to me, that was that was kind of a crime. It would be not unlike. I I don't really even have a good analogy. I mean, he ended up breaking the world of the genre that he owns essentially, and did it with really not much charisma. I didn't feel very much charisma. Mm. I, I agree with that. We. As a wrestling fan, I mean, everybody knew the kayfabe. Ever, but when you put that on the top shelf, you change them from wrestlers to superstars. No longer is it wrestling; it's sports entertainment. Yeah, yeah. The attitude of that, and and it goes back to what Paul said. I think that also shows Vince doesn't like wrestling. Mm. You look at the matches today in preparation for this. I watched some uh, a couple of pay per views. Of course, you pay less now that they're on YouTube, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know. In watching it, it's like he got lost in the carny aspect again and and really (laughs) took the emphasis off of what happens in the ring. And my best wrestling memories are what happened in the ring or, you know, the the, I don't remember why Dick Murdoch and Killer Carl Cox were the bad guys and all that. I don't remember the storyline of any of that. I remember the guy with the cane. And I think that you're absolutely right when you take that and make it where, in a way, it, it, it's disingenuous. It makes your audience look like idiots. And it makes mm. you stand mm. like you're saying, mm. we know you're idiots. Carry on. Right. Yeah. Mm. So on that happy note, um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank our panelists, Rich Lyons from Living After Faith Podcast. Great to be here. I have had a blast. I, I hope this is as entertaining as I, I have had a blast doing this. My tag team partner from Mike and Paul Save the Universe, Paul Rue. And uh, finally, Casey Doran, my uh, my sidekick on this uh, this great journey. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right. See you, gentlemen, in a couple months. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our audio engineer was Rich Lyons. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Hogan, we're coming for you, nigga!